Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome, everyone, to the latest Je Nicole pod episode. I'm your host, Lucy, and today we'll be discussing the future of military command and control with Lieutenant Shane Holton. In particular, we'll be discussing Shane's latest paper, Westmoreland's Dream and Perro's Nightmare, Two Perspectives on the Future of Military Command and Control, which was recently published by the Australian Journal of Defence and Strategic Studies. So we've pasted the link below to the article. We highly recommend you read it. Welcome, Shane, and thank you so much for joining us on Je Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. No worries. So by way of introducing your paper and today's discussion, um, I thought it would be best to pick out two quotes from General Westmoreland and Dr. Charles Perrow, which are essentially the two anchor pieces that are weaved throughout your paper. So I'll just start with a General Westmoreland quote from 1969. And he says, on the battlefield of the future, enemy forces will be located, tracked and targeted almost instantaneously through the use of data links computer-assisted intelligence evaluation, and automated fire control. I see battlefields or combat areas that are under 24-hour real or near-real-time surveillance of all types. I see battlefields on which we can destroy anything we locate through instant communications and the almost instantaneous application of highly lethal firepower. It's a pretty impressive quote. And we'll just quickly move to uh, Perro's quote, And Perry said, we need two or more failures among components that interact in some unexpected way. No one dreamed that when X failed, Y would also be out of order and the two failures would interact so as to both start a fire and silence the fire alarm. Furthermore, no one can figure out the interaction at the time and thus know what to do. The problem is just something that never occurred to the designers. This interacting tendency is a characteristic of a system, not of a part or an operator. We will call it the interactive complexity of the system. But suppose the system is also tightly coupled, that is, processes happen very fast and can't be turned off. The failed parts cannot be isolated from other parts. Operator action or the safety system might make it worse, since for a time it is not known what the problem really is. All right, so Shane, here we have two divergent views, I guess, on systems technology. If we start with Westmoreland's dream, as you term it, can you tell us a little bit about the background to that quote in the context of the era? Well, it's very interesting because Westmoreland at that time was the U.S. Army Chief of Staff, and he had just come off a tour as the overall commander for the Vietnam War, which is kind of fascinating if you think about it, because here Westmoreland has four years of operational experiment experience as a not just a theater commander, but a, a war commander, essentially, in a war that the U.S., even in 1969, is beginning to realize it's not going to win, that it's kind of turned into a low-tech stalemate, that it's a lot of sort of grinding counterinsurgency. But then Westmoreland gets transferred back to Washington, becomes U.S. Army Chief of Staff. And what he chooses to talk about when he's addressing the Army luncheon, basically like a, a regular meeting of, of Army sort of bigwigs and, and other folks in, the, in, in that world, he wants to talk about the future of technology. He wants to look beyond what's happening in Vietnam, and he wants to look to a future 
which I think very much is the reality we're living in today of how can computers and the computer technology that's coming online already at that point in California and uh, throughout the defense establishment in the United States, how is that going to change command and control and how is that going to change the face of warfare? So you, it's it's a really, from in my mind, it, it's really fascinating because, you know, Westmoreland had always had a reputation professionally as a guy who was, was as we would call it now, defense transformation. Um sort of like a uh, Robert McNamara era whiz kid, like that same kind of ethos about using technology to revolutionize how the Pentagon does things, how the U.S. military did things. Uh, but he was put in charge of the opposite type of war. And uh, then he ends up still being obsessed and focused on this idea of technology driving defense transformation. And he writes that in 1969. And 1969 is, you know, it must have sounded futuristic when he said it back then, because that is really the world we're living in today, right? If you think about the battle space over, for example, Afghanistan, you know, with a persistent UAV presence and sensors and satellites and all sorts of um, forces in in theater that can collect and and pass that information back, Westmoreland is basically describing what we would consider a sort of a modern battle space, um, particularly where the U.S. or its allies have uncontested um, control of the skies and also no real opposition from things like space collection. So what he was writing about that sounded like science fiction in 1969 is very much the reality that we're living with today. So I thought it was it was an interesting place to start because I was trying to go as far back as I could and find a description by a forward-thinking military commander that described the world that we're living in today. And I think that Westmoreland quote is that. And what was the response to his quote at the time? Um, I know you said it's quite futuristic, but do you, do you know what the response to to the quote was? I think the response at the time was Probably fairly muted, but you do see a lot of the same thinking going into the second offset strategy in the Pentagon in the 1970s, which was also an attempt to use U.S. uh, science and technology to overcome um, Soviet troop superiority in Western Europe. So the idea was, how can we use our technological advantage to offset the Soviet advantage in raw numbers in terms of men and tanks and all that stuff. So a lot of the technologies that came out of the second offset strategy do closely mirror Perro's vision, some stuff we still think about today, but sort of, you know, the idea of like long range strike with, um, you know, strategic ISR, the idea of of over-the-horizon targeting using third-party sensors and things like that. That's all second offset strategy. And that was all um, you know, deep penetration strikes and that kind of language. That was all language that I think per, um, Westmoreland would have been very familiar with, and he would have definitely understood the the motivating ethos behind the second offset strategy, which really took off in the mid-70s in the Pentagon. So the United States Department of Defense did create teams and projects to harness these new types of technologies for military use. So they were linking military with industry and also academia starting with Project Maven, which you discuss in your paper. Can you please tell our listeners a bit about these initiatives and how successful or unsuccessful they were? Sure. So Maven is actually a fairly recent development. And Maven is sort of the attempt by the Pentagon to harness um, what we understand to be still Silicon Valley superiority in, in artificial intelligence and machine learning technologies, and to bring some of that technology, but also those sort of business practices into the heart of the Pentagon. So Project Maven was championed by uh, former Secretary of Defense Bob Work um, and his team under the Obama administration. So it's relatively recent. I think it started in earnest in 2016. And the goal was to focus on uh, machine vision technologies at first. So instead of having a human being have to sit down and watch 
12 hours of UAV videos so that they could get 10 seconds of relevant action, uh, you would have a computer basically watch that video and be able to identify targets or at least um, identify points of interest for a human analyst to come back. So it was essentially, you know, how to, how to be more efficient about use of analyst time. But it also started uh, a larger move towards bringing Silicon Valley uh, into the Pentagon and creating the infrastructure that later became things like the Joint AI Center. So Project Maven really went from being a, was described as a cross-functional team. So basically run from the SecDef's office and at the sort of joint level. That became a more enduring institutional capacity under the Joint AI Center, which is is now stood up and is going to be based in California. Um, but that really is the effort of that. And I think Para, oh, sorry, I think Westmoreland would have recognized that as also very crucial because he did not expect the military or just defense contractors to be designing all of these cutting edge technologies. I mean, I think he understood at a basic level that one of the advantages America's always had is, you know, a lot of great universities, a lot of really smart people, a lot of patriotic, really smart people, even in the height of the Vietnam War era, where you were seeing some friction between um, civilian scientists and the Department of Defense over things like Agent Orange. Uh, you did have some resignations some protests around that um, during the Vietnam era. Westmoreland realized that that was a critical strength for the U.S. And he had to, you know, sort of expect to harness that in the future. And I think that, again, that part of what I describe as Westmoreland's dream in the paper is that working relationship between Silicon Valley, between American universities and the defense establishment. And I think you really do have that instantiated now in the Joint AI Center. So I think, again, it's something Westmoreland would look at and say, yeah, this is exactly what I talked about, this is exactly what we need to overcome you know, the adversary of the day, which obviously now is more China than the Soviet Union, but uh, it's similar. So, you know, not exactly the same, but it's a similar challenge. Interesting. And Shane, in your paper, you talk about this technological positivism of which Westmoreland is an example, but were there any other thinkers of his time that saw the limits of the future, the limits of this particular view he had of the future? Well, it's kind of a sine wave, I think, because if you think about the 1960s, particularly in the American context, you have um, the Apollo program, you have efforts to put men on the moon to do fantastic stuff from a science and technology point of view. And you have this whole idea that if you throw enough engineering power and smart people and money at a problem, you can overcome that problem, no matter what it is. You know, you want to build the, the world's largest dam, you can do that. You want to cure cancer in the 60s. You think that that's within reach. You want to just you know, live the Jetsons lifestyle. That all seems plausible in the middle of the 60s, particularly when you have the Apollo program going to the moon and all that and sort of the space race era. And what's interesting is I think Westmoreland really is, is emblematic of that thinking, but he also comes out of a very you know, well-established intellectual tradition in America, which is sort of you know, it's less ideological, but it's more sort of just, you know, roll up your sleeves, put the work in, get the smart people in a room, make it happen. That can do kind of attitude married with the traditional U.S. advantage in uh, science and technology that we've had since World War II. But so I, I call it technological positivism in the paper to sort of differentiate it from the more skeptical perspective that folks like Perro had later on. And I think the major difference is Westmoreland's writing in 1969 but beginning in the 70s, first of all, you have the hangover from the Vietnam War. You have this war that we threw all the money at, that we threw all the smart people at, we threw all the resources at, and we didn't win. And so the defense establishment has to reckon with that on some level that we just can't overawe the enemy 
with our, you know, jets and our missiles and our bombs and think that that's going to be sufficient for victory. So in the defense establishment, you have people thinking like that. But at a basic science and technology level, at a basic math and physics level, you have people in um, Los Alamos and other research facilities start to really dig into what we would think of as like the chaos sciences and the science around complexity. And what they start to realize is at a fundamental level, the world is very difficult to predict. It's why we can't have accurate weather forecasts that go out more than three or five days. Um, it's why you can't do long-term forecasting of things like the stock market, why it's very challenging to do it. At, at the end of the 60s, people thought, oh, yeah, we'll just get computers and they'll be able to answer all these questions for us. And then when that fails to happen, you have all these scientists go, well, let's actually dig into the math here. And it turns out that these nonlinear equations that govern the actual uh, behavior of complex systems are very hard math. And um, and they include a lot of uh, real fuzzy variables that uh, make everything very difficult to predict. And so what I think happens is that at a sort of a high level and almost like at a social or philosophical level, people start to re reckon with the limits of prediction and the limits of what you can do with pure engineering and the limits of planning to a degree. And that idea that you can positively plan the future with no real drawbacks. And you that not only can you do that, you probably should do that. It's a, it's a positive moral goal. That's what I think about with technological positivism. And applied to the Department of Defense, I think that really is Westmoreland's vision of an automated battlefield with sensors and data links and sort of fire control networks that are acting pretty much autonomously. I mean, that sort of is applying that same technological positivist mindset that was, again, dominant in the late 60s in America to uh, the battlefield of his time. You can move forward to guys like Pero and that second quote that you read and by that point, he's writing in the middle 80s, and he had seen the disaster at Three Mile Island, the nuclear disaster. He had seen um, other industrial-scale disasters, and he had realized that these disasters were the result of people believing that they could plan so well that they eliminated any uncertainty from the function of these systems. And they just did not appreciate the degree to which the complexity and the tight coupling of these systems made them prone to accidents. And so Perro's book famously named Normal Accidents, but when he says normal, he's not talking about they're going to happen every day, but he's saying it's going to happen probably once during the life cycle of the system. Is uh, in like uh, people don't, <laughs> everyone dies, but we only do it once, right? It's normal for a human being to die. Well, it's normal for systems of this level of complexity to fail because there's just too much happening. And we hubristically believed we could plan out uh, and sort of eliminate all that through superior engineering. And that just turned out not to be the case. And I think that that's still pretty understood today on one level, but maybe not as understood as it needs to be because you still hear a lot of people talking like they only read Westmoreland and never read Pero. I think is the challenge we're running into today. I was wondering if you could, for those who haven't really read much in this particular area about systems technology and things like that, if you could give us a brief explanation of the difference between tightly and loosely coupled systems. Oh, sure. So a good example would be, so leave aside complexity for a second. All of these are relative terms, so tightly and loosely coupled. But if you think about an air traffic control system that um, is run by people, I would say, Pero would say that's like moderately coupled, as in it's Folks talking to one another, they're relying on um, technology, but they're also trying to make sense of of the world by having conversations with one another by what's happening, by having communication between two people. Now, that's loosely coupled. So if one person gets it wrong, there's still an opportunity to correct that before um, 
you know, things get much worse and, and the situation gets more confused and more dangerous. A more tightly coupled system is where instead of people, you've got machines talking to one another and maybe it works better. Maybe it's more efficient. Maybe it can process more planes in the air at the same time. But when the system goes wrong, the components affect one another in a serial way very quickly. And so when one breaks, it can cause cascading failures. So really what the difference is between loose coupling and tight coupling is if part A breaks, does that necessarily mean that B, C, D, E, F break in rapid succession? Or does that mean that there's some some gap in time and space possibly between one part breaking and another part breaking. But of course, these are all design trade-offs that you have to think about when you're designing a complex system because you might be comfortable taking some risks uh, by tightly coupling things because it just makes more sense um, to do so from an efficiency point of view. Or you might have to because you have to design a system to control a very fast process. And if you too loosely couple it, it's not fast enough to control the thing you designed it for. So there are reasons that you might pursue tighter coupling. Um, and you know, in, it's not always a mistake. Sometimes it's the design choice. But that's a real challenge when you talk about military systems because tight coupling in military systems mean you can have a false identification of a target and that information can be passed to a weapon system. And that can draw fire down on that target, which was misidentified in the first place. That's how you have friendly fire accidents. That's how you have tragedies where civilian infrastructure are hit during military strikes, churches, hospitals, things like that. Um, the more tightly you couple those components, the more immediately you feed the sensor to the shooter uh, that information, the higher risk you have of one of those accidents happening, especially if it happens so quickly that you remove human oversight or the ability for humans to have any oversight from the situation. And how do you propose uh, modern military addresses the issue of an interactively complex and tightly coupled system potentially malfunctioning in battle, particularly when C2 is increasingly reliant on these complex systems that disseminate information throughout the entire chain of command? Well, I don't have all the answers here. I Really, this article is trying to frame the question uh, so that people smarter than me <laughs> can hopefully take it up. Because what I find is when you talk um, about these uh, modern command and control systems, I'll give you an example. Right now, there's a lot of discussion in the US around joint all domain C2. So the joint all domain C2 program that the joint staff is discussing right now openly in the press, this is unclassified. It's an effort to pair um, different groups of sensors. So if we're talking about satellites or UAVs or just traditional sensors like radars to a whole new suite of shooters. So maybe you had a Air Force sensor that can now support Marine artillery. That's new. We didn't used to be able to do that. But the joint all domain C2 infrastructure, in my mind, does feel like a more interactively complex and tightly coupled system. And the challenge is you might think, well, because look what Charles Perrow wrote, and that means that we shouldn't do that because it's too dangerous because it introduces all these risks, not just in terms of misattribution of targets, but also just that it creates a system that's so complex that no one really has effective over control of it. And I would agree that those are concerns, but I would also say that the joint staff and the DOD in America are only doing this because they view themselves as having to compete with the Chinese military. They're being driven by operational necessity. So we keep constructing these increasingly complex and increasingly tightly coupled systems because we have to. It's not always a choice. 
So I think the challenge is going to be have these two perspectives in your mind when you are designing these systems, when you're trying to operate them. There is the positive view that Westmoreland talks about, which is a more efficient system, a more efficient way for commanders to see, understand, and affect the battle space. But then you also have what Pero talked about, which is equally as valid and operational at the exact same time. And that is that the more you try to do with these systems, the more you are going to introduce this normal accident risk. And so my paper is really just trying to basically frame that discussion for people who are much more intelligent than me, hopefully to come along and to have, um, you know, specific design or operational um, remedies to deal with the worst aspects of this. Because I do think it is a huge challenge for us as we move into a much more digital and complex and highly censored battle space that's pretty much new, not just for the United States, but it's also new for our competitors too. I'm sure China, Russia are all having versions of the same problem, which is how do you manage all of this information and all of these effects that you want to bring together in sort of a a Klaus Witzian sense to bring force down at the point of decision. It's the same military problem. It's just changed by the nature of technology today. And this actually made me think, what kind of questions does this raise for mission command in the military? This is already a discussion of to what degree do operational commanders actually have mission command, but with increasing reliance on systems like these, uh, yeah, what, what relevance does that have for mission command? Do you have any comments on that? I do. So um, I've actually read some really interesting articles, um, one of which I I do cite in my paper that discuss the need to rejuvenate mission command at all levels, because these are Marine Corps officers who are writing about the fact that they are over-centralized and they are reliant on their higher headquarters to both provide them resources and also to give them direction. And the challenge they're seeing is hey, if we get cut off in war, which happens, right? Obviously, lower commands can, lower levels of command can lose contact with a higher level of command. The Marines will tell you, we need to be able to to exercise mission command and we need to be able to operate at that lowest possible level. So stop over-centralizing everything. Stop subordinating us to these command and control structures. That means that everything is so tightly centralized that we can't operate independently because what's going to happen is the center is going to not be able to talk to the down echelon units, and they're not going to be able to operate. The whole system will fall apart. Kind of like you imagine the French high command in like World War II when the Blitzkrieg struck. I mean, it was a very big military with a lot of resources, but it was also very highly centralized, and they were not able to react as dynamically as the Germans, which had more of a mission command mindset with the Blitzkrieg. And so the French were constantly looking to their upper chain of command to get orders to what to do. They were not able to um, react as dynamically as the Germans were. And it's one of the reasons that they lost the Battle of France and they subsequently lost the war um, until America and allies came over and won the war in 1945. But in 1940, <laughs> the French lost, right? Um, yeah. But I, I'll just say that the that's a real um, – that's a good point for folks to be making that mission command is important. But the challenge that I see is, again, no one is choosing – No one says, I want to make the most centralized form of command and control. I want to make it as interactively complex as possible. I want to make it as tightly coupled as possible. Because to do that, to say that would be lunacy. Because we all understand on like a basic level that trying to too tightly centralize things is a recipe for disaster. (laughs) You know, it just, it's just not going to work. And it's always the critique that the Western militaries had of the Soviet Union. The Soviet army was too highly centralized. These guys could not operate independently. So they would always 
imagine they would do less and less well in things like dogfights and things like that because they'd be waiting on an air traffic controller to tell them what to do, whereas our pilots have the sort of freedom of action in the air to make decisions that could give them tactical superiority. No one wants to design a centralized system. However, if you look at the kind of missions that the U.S. and China and Russia are going to try to do in the 21st century, in the next decade, they're going to try to do things like hypersonic missile defense. They're going to try to do things like ballistic missile defense. They're going to try to do things like synchronizing real-world effects like kinetic fires and cyber warfare in real time. All of these missions require a high degree of centralization. It's unavoidable. There's no way to do decentralized ballistic missile defense. Ballistic missile defense architectures are geographically spread out across 100 miles or more, and they're all different components that talk to one another. It's different radar systems, different interceptors. If all of these pieces aren't playing together in a tightly centralized way, the whole system will not work. So I don't really know how you can mission command yourself out of that problem. So I do think that there's a bit of inevitability that we will be forced into these design design decisions that force us to adopt more interactively complex and tightly coupled systems like Peril warned about, and they're dangerous. I'm mostly concerned that we haven't really grappled with how dangerous they are. We understand they can be hacked. We understand they can be jammed. We are concerned about the network integrity, particularly in a high-end warfare where we don't have all the satellite architecture or the space architecture. We are worried about degradation. But we're not really worried about normal accidents, despite the fact that Perro's work would indicate that that's pretty tightly baked into what we're doing right now. Um, So I just want to highlight that the whole reason I wrote the paper really was to highlight this other danger element that we don't really consider when we're constructing these sort of very complex modern command and control architectures. Yeah. And when you were talking about the example of what warfare is going to look like in the 21st century in the next decade. I like that you use examples of um, ballistic missile defense, hypersonic missile defense. So to what degree do you agree with the fact that modern militaries are now facing kill webs, not kill chains? And do you think that's a a more difficult thing for targeting or does that actually make it easier because things are more increasingly linked? Yeah, I think we should clarify our terms a bit. So the modern military, you know, in in the West and throughout the world has been reliant on not particularly complex kill chains to do their missions. So if you think about in the Navy context, that's a single radar that would feed information to a single weapons system that would fire a missile, for example. I think the classic example is sort of if you think about an Arleigh Burke system, uh, Spy-1 uh, standard missile launch, you have the radar detection and that triggers the launch of the missile. Even in fully automatic mode, which you know Arleigh Burks have some ability to go full auto, even if they're doing that, that's a fairly simple kill chain, right? That's one sensor supporting one missile through one combat system. In the future, I don't think it's going to be that simple because you're going to have a disaggregation in space and time of your sensors and your shooters. And you will not have a clear line that says this weapon system only gets its inputs from one sensor. I think you're going to have, and it's interesting because we talk about this as a danger, as a risk from a normal accident perspective. But if I was a, if I was a commander on the ground, I would say, well, this is great. I'm a Marine Corps guy. I never got support from the Air Force, but this is wonderful. Now I can just tap into these Air Force sensors and I can do my mission. This is everything I ever wanted, right? Um, so for them, it's a dream come true. And this is Westmoreland again. Westmoreland saying, hey, we've got this future battle space. It's all automated. Data links. This is great. And he's very positive about it. 
Um, so from a military commander point of view, I, I think they're very excited to have all the resources they can to do their mission, all the ISR resources, all the sensors. However, if you look at it from a normal accident perspective, you'd say, well, do you even know what, where these inputs are coming from? Do you know how your missile system is getting fed its data? Do you understand the information architecture and how much automation is built into that information architecture? How many of these sensors are entirely automated, for example? And how comfortable do you feel taking a shot with your missile system against a target that you've never been able to independently verify it exists because it is outside of the range of your organic sensors. And these are the challenges that we're going to have to deal with. I guess at the same time as well, like if I'm thinking of like a, the example of a missiles here. So if you think of a Mark one missile, then you go Mark three, Mark four, or then ballistic, that also requires a shorter C2 response inherently to actually effectively address that threat. So yeah, it is interesting. I think there's a bit of a duality there with, Um, both the risk uh, as well as the benefit, which I think you've highlighted really well. Yeah. And so that's actually a a slightly different problem because that's not just complexity in terms of a complex kill chain. You also have to talk about artificial intelligence and automation. I don't really know how you can do hypersonic missile defense. So hypersonic being a missile that goes faster than Mach 5. I don't really know how you can do hypersonic missile defense without a high degree of automation, without a high degree of artificial intelligence built into the system. Because Mach 5 is too fast for, for the human mind <laughs> for the human mind to really grapple with and for human operators to be able to respond effectively to. Um, and because it's too fast for them to track, if they want to track it, they have to turn that over to a machine learning system that can that can respond that quickly. And so right there, you've already created a out of operational necessity, you've already created a system where the human is no longer in the loop by necessity. If the human was in the loop, They'd be too slow. They would slow the whole process down and they would have no ability to react effectively and do the mission, right? Which is defense. So I do think that in addition to components of these systems being tightly coupled and the systems themselves being interactively complex in certain ways, you have to deal with almost like a third dimension of this challenge, which is when and where are you going to apply artificial intelligence and machine learning, which I'm using kind of synonymously here, um, to supplement your command and control capabilities. Those decisions are very important from a design point of view. And also, if you're a down echelon commander, you're just the guy with the missiles. You don't have all the sensors in front of you. Do you understand to what degree you're relying on artificial intelligence to make these shots? Because I feel like there is not always a very robust articulation of um, the entire... Let's just put it this way. You... (laughs) You're not actually required to understand the entire satellite architecture in order to fire an artillery round. The military will let you take shots with very little understanding of the strategic architecture that supports you. Um, And I don't know if that's the best way to do things or if that should change in the future. But um, these systems are all getting much more, much more complex. We recommend all our guests go and read Shane's paper. It's extremely interesting. I think it raises very important questions, not only for command and control, but technology, uh, development of technology as well. So that wraps up the core part of the podcast. And now we're going to move to our Sailors 3, which is our maritime variant of the Soldiers 5. So are you ready, Shane, for the three questions? I am. Okay, so our first question is, what is your favorite military platform that is currently in service or has been in history and why? We want to know why as well. 
I wrestled with this one a, a bit, actually, because I have some favorites, uh, both in history of, of military affairs and also more more recently. But I think keeping with the theme of the discussion, I I think I will say the Arleigh Burke class destroyers, because once you realize um, how much capability is packed onto that one class of ship and their ability to, to excel across surface warfare, to do some anti-submarine warfare, to do air defense and to do ballistic missile defense, you really get an appreciation for that uh, ship as a sort of jack of all trades. And it's totally understandable why it's still sort of the workforce, the workhorse of the U.S. Navy, Um, especially when you think about it's still sort of the cornerstone for our ballistic missile defense uh, capabilities in the Pacific. Um, They're always called upon to supplement um, different missions that you might think, oh, well, isn't there a better... uh, a better platform to choose for this. And they'll say, well, the Arleigh Burke can do it. So they'll put the Arleigh Burke there. And it's just, it's just an incredible platform with a lot of capability. And now as we're starting to talk about disaggregating these kill webs, you have to sort of appreciate the last time that we were able to draw all those webs into a single platform and a single capability. And I think that is the Arleigh Burke class uh, destroyers that the U S Navy created in the late seventies. Yeah, it's a good argument. It continues to have a whole lot of relevance in multiple different types of missions despite its age. All right, so now we'll move into the next question. So what is the most interesting emerging technology in your view? It could be at any stage of development, so don't be afraid to go a little sci-fi if you want to. So I, I know a previous guest had listed cyber effects in warfare as his choice, and I don't want to double tap that one, though I do find those interesting. I, I'll say um, electronic warfare, particularly High-powered microwaves, there was a demonstration of a system by, I want to say it was Boeing, called the CHAMP system, which was a UAV that could fly over an area and essentially beam down high-powered microwaves that would cause essentially electronic systems, so anything, be the lights and power grid, to just go off, to flicker off. It would be essentially a small EMP weapon, electromagnetic pulse weapon. I find those effects, those sort of hard non-kinetic effects that do achieve mission kills to be the most interesting form of warfare now because I don't quite understand how they slot into the traditional escalation ladder. You know, if if someone's firing at you, that's a clear escalation um, that you have to respond to kinetically. If someone attacks you with cyber, that's not quite as clear. But electromagnetic warfare, you will destroy a system's electrical components with this I'm not sure if that quite hits the level of um, having to respond kinetically, but it's a very capable capability. And I think it sits right below that threshold where we would feel compelled to dynamically respond. So I do think it could get, there could be some utility in our adversaries or us evolving a high power microwave capability because it could let us do things without necessarily escalating conflicts. And I think, yeah, it would also confuse rules of engagement as well. It create, it poses a whole lot of follow-on questions. It's very interesting. Okay, now we'll move to our last question, which is the wild card. So you can choose to make a prediction for the future of military operations. You can recommend a book all emerging maritime leaders should read or a tip for emerging maritime leaders. So which one do you pick, Shane? Oh, if I have to pick one, I'm always going to recommend the same book. Uh, so I recommend Philip Tetlock's Expert Political Judgment. Um, that is a book that was written by an American sociologist about 10 years ago. Uh, Tetlock had wanted to study experts who made predictions about the future and to find out how reliable those predictions were. 
Turns out he was able to verify pretty empirically and fairly quickly that experts are not particularly good at predicting the future. Um, they don't have a great track record. They're slightly worse than random. They're, they're slightly worse than random, honestly. Um, so he lays out, you know, not just a discussion of the cognitive biases that lead people to make incorrect predictions, but also gets into a really interesting discussion of known, knowns, known, unknowns. And so the Rumsfeldian thing about what can be predicted about the future and what can't. But the last and most interesting thing in my um, in my perspective is he details something that he calls belief system defenses. And belief system defenses are basically when a prediction is made and then it is proved to be incorrect. So, hey, um, China is going to collapse in the year 2010 and that doesn't happen. And you say, well, you predicted this thing and it didn't happen. What, what happened there? And the belief system defenses are all the different ways that uh, Tetlock catalogs to for people to defend their predictions as almost being right. They would have been right if this other thing had happened or if this or that. And so there are all these unique sort of considerations, but it's the mental gymnastics that people will come up with and, and go through to keep from updating their their picture of the world. And I think that that is fascinating. Um, having spent a lot of time in different <laughs> roles in the military, trying to convince people that their view of the world was maybe incorrect or incomplete. Um, I found that book, Expert Political Judgment, to be fascinating uh, and a great sort of toolkit if you are trying to change people's minds. Because once you understand belief system defenses as a class, you can then uh, build your arguments to sort of... Uh, Disable those minefields before you step on them. <laughs> so I definitely recommend Philip, yeah, I recommend Philip Tetlock's Expert Political Judgment. It's wonderful. It's a great book. The audiobook's pretty good too. Um, but the the paperback has the charts. So definitely check that one out. I recommend that to every um, every junior officer I come in contact with. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Jonah Cole, Shane. I think it was a very interesting and stimulating discussion, which raised uh, some important questions for the future conduct of military operations, as well as military C2 more generally. And as we stated at the beginning, Shane's latest paper, the link to it from the Australian Defence and Strategic Studies Journal will be posted below. So thank you again very much for coming on the show, Shane. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Lucy. Thank you for listening to Je Nicole Pod. Stay in contact with us via jeunicole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeunicole.com.